So there's no uh, doubt in in our minds, uh, Matt, and and you would agree with that, that uh, with COVID itself, we've seen a regression on the uh, sustainable development goals. You know, the the progress that was made to eradicate uh, poverty or to get more people uh, into uh, food security or education, etc., is is without any doubt has had a major setback. Some people think it's four to five years and that we have to accelerate to catch up and and that is possible. But the question is, do we have the willpower? But it is still possible. But it's the longer we wait, obviously, the more it is going to cost us. Uh, we we have seen a rise again in, in uh, with the lack of health service and in some of the uh, diseases. We've seen uh, a, a slippage on people in education, still over 200 million not in education. We have seen more and more people living in areas of conflict, which are going up. Obviously, on climate, we're still off track. We see a 14% increase this decade when we actually need to have a 45 to 50% decline. And then the emerging markets are really under pressure again with potentially up to 40 markets in a, in a position of economic stress where they can't serve their debts anymore. Rising interest rates, inflation and all that. Uh, putting an enormous stress on their system. On a macro level, you'd say, um, you know, uh, immediately on, on food security, we've put another 200 million people at risk and, and probably another 100 million people have slipped back in acute poverty. So there is a big challenge and, and the challenge is really uh, all the factors that are coming together. Uh, uh, climate, uh, conflict, uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, the uh, pandemic itself that keeps going. And the social fabric, obviously, of society is, is severely being tested. I don't, I don't beat around the bush there. But interestingly, we're getting at the point that, uh, the cost of not acting is becoming higher than the cost of acting. And more and more people are starting to see that. COVID cost us $17 trillion just to save lives and livelihoods. Uh, it's a zoonotic disease that could have been probably prevented, like Zika, SARS, Ebola, Asian flu, if we would have better protected biodiversity. The $17 trillion is infinitely more than what it cost us to to prevent it in the first place. Uh, not having people in education is costing the global economy $15 trillion as a minimum in lost uh, potential. Uh, our broken food system has a $12 trillion cost in terms of driving people in poverty, uh, climate change, you know, indigenous people uh, suffering, all these things. With Scoot, if you turn it around to a regenerative system, could be $4 trillion benefit. So if anything, although the cost of implementing the sustainable development goals have gone up, a recent report estimated that to be $150 trillion, more or less, because of the uh, inflationary effects, but also the pressure on the timeline that we have. So the cost might have gone up. I would also argue that the benefits of implementing it have become bigger. And um, here you see uh, companies moving over um, $38 trillion of market cap now. Uh, has net zero targets, over 3,000 companies on the science-based targets. You see governments moving. 95% of emissions 
are now governed by governments, about 65% of the governments, so the main ones are included, with a net zero commitment. Uh, laws are coming in, like uh, the European uh, Green Deal is obviously a good example of that. And uh, the IRA in the US is a good example of that, the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, we see countries like Australia moving faster, or India coming in more aggressively, potentially another kickathon. If uh, Brazil changes government, we might see that. So on the government side, I think there is more momentum than people give credit for. And then the citizens of this wealth are obviously asking for it. They're increasingly more choosy for whom they're going to work, how they're going to work, their engagement, and but also in terms of the products they buy. We've seen a major shift even since COVID. And then last but not least, which is obviously the most important thing here, is that the financial market moves. If the financial market doesn't move, you really don't get the results. And now we have um, about uh, $40 billion of money on the minutes. No, sorry, $57 billion. Trillion, uh, apologize, 57 trillion that sincerely has committed to decarbonizing their portfolio. There's 130 trillion in the GFENS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero, that has made those commitments. But the fundamental shift, and, and the shift is really because, you know, uh, uh, people see that, uh, that uh, going back to where we came from is not desirable, but it's also not an economically viable option anymore. And um, there are in increasing indicators that companies that move in that direction are better off, that put purpose in the middle, that put st- the sustainability at the heart of their strategies. These companies tend to do better. Over a five-year period, we see uh, sustainable funds outperforming non-sustainable funds. You might have a little blip right now in the fossil fuel, but broadly that trend holds still now for all the other sectors. We see 95% of companies now issuing sustainable report, sustainability reports. You know, we see uh, we see uh, the uh, major innovations in that area getting <laughs> rewarded. So the train has left the station. Now there are there are some bottlenecks there, not um, to be denied. Uh, as as the, uh, the the transformation is happening. And by the way, we're seeing tipping points coming in on on wind or solar or mobility increasingly so. Uh, then the voices of opposition are getting louder as well. So we have to be sure that we deliver and that we deliver it right and not uh, get accused of greenwashing and all the other things. But I think broadly, this political movement that you see in the U.S. on woke capitalism, etc., doesn't have much validity. It's really the festered order that cries uh, wolf at the end when the transformation is really happening and they can't stop it. Even 70% of the Republicans say it's needed for states to pass laws that you cannot use ESG factors in risk assessment is outright ludicrous. Uh, most companies are actually doing it already. You can't stop these trends. So the barriers that might be our short-termism that is still there short-termism in our systems and our governments. You see them now with the Ukraine war and and the energy and food crisis, uh, you know, easily going back to uh, shovel-ready things that actually pushes in the wrong direction, uh, producing more cheap food that creates more healthcare issues or more going back to fracking or coal mines will only make the issues uh, worse. You amplify the issues 
that we actually need to solve. So we have to watch short-termism, also in companies, by the way. Some companies have a bonanza because of these market changes, and uh, some of them are reverting back to uh, special dividends or share buybacks. Uh, they would be very well advised to to invest more in the future. I mean, it's ridiculous that the uh, fossil fuel companies spent less than 5% really on their capital in uh, in, in, in greening uh, their their business models and spent more on special buybacks and dividends. Unacceptable in my opinion. We have barriers on leadership where many people are, are not aware or don't have the courage to move. Where they hide behind profit and purpose cannot be the same or we cannot do it uh, if our competitors don't do it. That's not the case anymore broadly for many things that we can do today, but it requires courage to set targets in line with science to take responsibility of your total impact in the world, and that is sometimes missing. Uh, our measure system is still confusing. I recognize that. We, it doesn't stop us from moving, but we still would be benefit would benefit from having more clarity around some of these measures. So the implementation of the sustainable standard board and, and other things are important as well. And then I recognize that governments or multilateral institutions might not always function. But that doesn't preclude business from working together and, and accelerating the transformations and actually de-risking the process. We very much saw that in the COP26, where the Secretary General pointed out that it really was the strong signs of the private sector that hopeful, that probably translated into more courage at the uh, governmental level. And I think we need to keep that pressure up. For business alone, you know, there are some things that, that we need to work on. As I said, awareness might be one of them. Uh, sometimes upfront costs that business alone cannot manage. Um, you know, the um, the uh, technologies might not all be there to solve all the problems overnight, but fortunately we have, uh, you know, 20, 30 years to do that. And frankly, the bigger issues are, uh, the need for partnerships to tackle the broader issues like deforestation or plastics in the ocean, the need for having uh, governments put the right frameworks in place. We still see about $1.8 trillion of perverse subsidies going into fossil or our or food system that drive it in the wrong direction. So these are things that that are barriers. They shouldn't be really surprises. Uh, these are good to be aware of, but they can also be uh, be addressed. And then what we need to do is obviously is uh, first and foremost, everybody needs to step up on climate change. I think you need to set targets not anymore by 2050, but 2040, 2030. They need to include scope three. Um, these pathways need to be very clear. Uh, and that needs to be not only energy transition, but also, for example, uh, our our uh, food systems and uh, and therefore targets for nature. Uh, we also need to be sure that within all of that, we create the right jobs and the better jobs and and create this more inclusive uh, um, economy that we all talk about. It requires our financial structures to change, our international financial institutions, the World Banks, the regional development banks really need to start to think differently about their role. The IMF, the World Bank on debt architecture, if we don't help, especially the emerging markets uh, in, in loss and damage already now and in, in the Green Fund and helping them transfer, it will not uh, happen. Um, 
you know, we, we, so, so the, and, and then obviously we need to continue to work our healthcare system, uh, where we are still coming out of a COVID recovery, but it requires much more than what we're currently doing. Otherwise we'll fall back and risk another, uh, wave of pandemics of this magnitude, which frankly the world is not ready to handle anymore. So then you see individual businesses around the sustainable development goals. That's why I, uh, created the Business and Sustainable Development Commission, as you probably are aware still. We asked Mark Malik-Brown to chair that. And that commission came with clear recommendations on how to integrate the sustainable development goals into the business um, by by creating awareness, by linking specific uh, actions to the goals, by working it in your value chain, by broadening these partnerships, by doing a lot of advocacy. And, uh, you know, the good thing is that I think at that time we said a thousand uh, companies need to be aware. We achieved uh, 1,800 uh, companies and CEOs, uh, and that was good. Now it's the UN Global Compact that has extended to 17,000, which makes an interesting point. I, I chaired the UN Global Compact for the Secretary General, and we, provide, we, we put a fee-paying system in place, and then COVID hit. Everybody thought you're in trouble. Not only is there fee paying, but COVID. Uh, we actually moved from uh, 13,000 members to 17,000 members. We've never seen such a fast growth. And, uh, and that despite the fee system, which now gives us more flexibility to do things. So there's something happening out there that is good. And what we see in these 17,000 companies, which might be the the more pre-selected ones, but but most of them are actually integrating the sustainable development goals now and increasingly reporting on these sustainable development goals. So it is urgent. Uh, We continue to need to set the bar higher, Um, but we, we are moving. It is just that the problems that we face are catching up with us faster than the actions we're taking to deal with it. And that's probably also a frustrating point because if you talk to a lot of the companies, they say they're doing more than they've ever done before and they can point to evidence of that. They say it really comes at a time that there are many pain points in business. But the reality is we're close to negative feedback loops on some of the things. World Overshoot Day is July 29th this year. Every day after that, we're stealing from future generations. So that's why we wrote the book Net Positive to end on that is to change the mindset that we are not in a CSR mindset of less bad anymore, a little bit less carbon emission, a little bit less plastics, a little bit less um, uh, deforestation. That's simply not good enough anymore. We absolutely have to move to thinking uh, regenerative, restorative, reparative. And that's what we call net positive. What we're trying to do is the book that's off to a very good start actually and, and moving very fast. We're trying with the book to get people to uh, very practically on the how, how do you make that transition and how do you do that at a company level, but also broader, as you probably have seen. So that's really where we are. And, uh, you know, it's it's a tough moment, especially also since the politicians aren't talking with each other, since you get hijacked by other issues that, uh, you know, it's – but – you know, giving in is not the answer. Saying it's impossible is, is a mindset issue that is between our hands, uh, in our own uh, hands. So, you know, I still uh, remain, you know, what I call a prisoner of hope, uh, but it requires more efforts. But, uh, you know, so be it. 
it makes us go into overdrive and we we now need to see at the UN General Assembly that I'm going in this week and then uh, the work that we're doing in preparation for the COP27 in Egypt and then uh, the G20 in Indonesia and hold on to some of the things that we realistically can achieve and work with the private sector and others to just keep going increasingly at a faster pace than than our governments are able to deliver. But, you know, that's, that's our responsibility. Well, that was a really comprehensive overview of that. So that was great. Thank you very much for that, Paul. And I wanted to really touch on the that kind of 4,000 company increase that you mentioned that you're quite surprised by kind of uh, during the pandemic. And um, I'd like to kind of pick your thoughts on my thing that is. I mean, I, I've, I'm sure you've probably seen that kind of the newspaper cartoon strip where you've got the big kind of COVID wave and then the one behind is the, the kind of climate crisis and the ecological crisis. Do you think it's just more businesses adopting that mindset or? You know, so on the one hand, it's overwhelming for business. It's not easy because the scale of change is bigger than they've ever done, well exceeding the industrial revolution because every system needs to change. And the time frame we have is much shorter than even the technological revolutions. And it seems that you get your hands around one thing and then another thing happens. But I think people are starting to realize, and thanks to COVID to some extent, the interrelationship between everything, the biodiversity destruction, the human health, the climate change, the racial dimensions, the economy itself. So without any doubt, it is complexer, uh, more complex, and it looks like there are more and more issues. But there's a big benefit in this because it shows you how many things are broken. And in the financial crisis, we just put a plaster on the wound. We didn't do anything. We didn't address climate change. We didn't address inequality. People thought uh, banks were too big to fail, but people too small to matter. Now that things are really truly broken and people start to see that and actually feel the consequences of that, uh, just look at Pakistan, one third of the country underwater, the size of Great Britain. You know, you have 35 million people displaced. It doesn't even get in the newspapers anymore. But this will be the occurrence on a on a monthly, weekly, if not daily basis, uh, the way we're going. So people are starting to really realize that this change needs to happen. And ESG, uh, despite its critique that it addresses, didn't really exist five years ago. It's now firmly on the map on every company. And yes, there are companies that move faster and are more sincere. And then there are CEOs that just try to sit it out uh, and negotiate their salaries uh, for an exit package. But but broadly, business is moving. What we see at the UN Global Compact, it is moving. And what, what is more important now is that partnerships are being formed. You know, every business can say what they do, and it might not be enough, but they're moving. But it is really the reality is, uh, Matt, if you want this, the, the bigger changes that society now needs, you need to work together. So the Mission Possible partnerships or the First Mover partnerships or what we are doing with Imagine with the Food Collective or the Fashion or uh, tourism and travel now, uh, these are actually leading us to uh, systemic changes. Increasingly, it's this cooperative leadership versus competitive leadership. Increasingly, it's moving to this to this uh, pre-competitive space where I always say we shouldn't compete for the future of humanity. So that space is increasing, and that's a good thing, not a day too soon, and, and that we need to nourish that. I don't think it would only come from individual companies doing things or individual governments doing things. It comes from this broader partnership. And sure, if we had multilateralism that worked better or if we had uh, more responsible people running the governments would make our jobs a little easier. But, you know, we're not shy of, of knowing how to deal with challenges, even if at times I wouldn't disacknowledge that, but 
at times it might sound discouraging, but then you have to quickly sh- shift your mind out of it again, you know. And, and just finally then, Paul, um, I want to kind of do a bit of blue sky thing and, 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 you know, fast forward to 2013 and, and say, you know, we, we did kind of manage the ban around the scores and we did deliver the kind of the 2030 agenda. What would the business of the future in, in that scenario look like? Like what are the kind of skills, uh, that are, that are business leaders that are going to have to kind of drive us from where we are now to that kind of prosperous future that we're all aiming for? So, so there are probably two questions in, uh, in that one. The first one is what are the skills needed? And as we've seen a bifurcational business, between businesses that did better during the financial crisis versus businesses that didn't do so well. Broadly, these businesses were running a more long-term business model purpose at the core, you know, sustainability embedded in their strategies. These longer-term businesses that ran more responsibly were more resilient, had more uh, engaged uh, uh, workforce, better relationships in their value chain. Broadly, they did better. And you can see that with the ESG funds, 80% outperforming the non-ESG funds over this five-year period. And I can give you other statistics. As a minimum, you could say they wouldn't do worse, but we are seeing increasingly statistical evidence that they are doing better. Always exceptions, but they're doing better. But on the leadership, we've also seen a bifurcation. We've clearly seen also during COVID where there's an enormous angst and uncertainty and, and mental pressure and, and people are really worried. Uh, to an extent that much bigger than we've ever seen, that companies that operate with a stronger purpose, that the CEOs uh, embrace partnerships, where they operate with a high level of uh, humanity, humility, empathy, compassion, uh, where they think multi-generational. I mean, these CEOs have instilled a higher level of trust, and and these companies again tend to do better. So, bifurcational leadership bifurcational business models very much coming there what does the world look like in 2030 or beyond it's not that far anymore and i'm i'm not sure if the other sustainable development goals will be achieved by 2030 but the most important thing now is is that we reverse inequality the trend in inequality and that we keep our climate change under the one and a half degrees and that's the most important thing it might not make us hit all of the sustainable development goals, but they are preconditions nearly for hitting the sustainable development goals. But you can certainly see for business itself that that results in a more sustainable business models where businesses are becoming more and more net positive and we're seeing examples of that, a more inclusive society um, where, where uh, inequality is going down instead of going up, a better social cohesion where democracy is being restored versus what we now see in many places, democracy going down. And where as a result of that, actually, we also see better uh, global cooperation. Uh, actually, most of the industries that we look at, we see that scenario being more profitable, actually, and more responsible growth, believe it or not. Uh, Deloitte did a study that said if we don't do anything and we just do business as usual by 2050, we could incur a cost of $178 trillion. If we actually move to that more sustainable world and attack these burning issues of climate change first and foremost, we can actually have a $43 trillion positive. That swing is enormous. And every business now that is aware, that, that educates themselves, um, is starting to see that that is the most preferred route. And in every industry, even the high abatement industries now, the high emitting industries, you'll have leaders 
in each of the industries, I would argue 15, 20% of these markets already that are doing amazing things. Yesterday I was talking to Maersk, the shipping company. I mean, they want to be 30% of their planes with sustainable airline fuel, SAF, you, you're familiar with that. They want to be 100% carbon um, uh, neutral by 2040. These are the shipping. Five years ago, they weren't even included in the Paris agreements. You see? So, and the same is happening in steel or in, in other high abatement industries that we're looking at. So I think there's more in there that if we can bring people together and scale, uh, get some of the governments to understand that it positions them better, we really can have this wealth that is more inclusive, that is more sustainable. And we're close to tipping points. Without any doubt, that world will already have the electric vehicle in there. Uh, 38% of energy right now comes from solar and wind, 32% in coal. In 2030, that will be probably 50% plus from solar and wind and no coal. Uh, we can breathe the air again. You know, the 8 million people that die every year prematurely of air pollution are, are thanking us for that. I hope also that we can at least have half of the way we produce food to be sustainably produced. We can get to a, to that level of regenerative agriculture. It also means livelihoods for farmers. 95% of the people in poverty now are subsistence smallholder farmers. It also means that by 2030, we have not only halted nature loss, but we have actually started to restore our nature. In fact, it goes much faster and much cheaper to work on nature than to do some of these more difficult energy transitions. Um, it was a very high return. One dollar invested in nature is a $16 return. But I hope we'll restore nature by that point in time and start valuing that. By that time, we have accounting standards that not only do financial accounting, which some people are good at, but also environmental, human, social accounting. So, yeah, it, it, at that time, is, is there, there will be two questions. What the heck were we doing? And, and the level of confidence that we are creating this world that we all aspire to live in. So it's very energizing. It's energizing to be young, to be a millennial, Gen Z, because you're at that tipping point moment where history is being made and where future generations will look back and say, yeah, after all, they weren't as dumb as we thought or as they thought perhaps they were.